And let's turn together to John chapter 16. John 16, we'll be dealing with verses 4 through 15 this morning as we look at the work of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit. John chapter 16, we're in that farewell discourse. In John 16 and verse 4, Jesus said to his disciples, These things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Do you ever wish or imagine that you could have been there during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, to be there and see Jesus in person, to see his face and hear his voice, to know his touch, to, to see the miracles, to sit at his feet and listen to his teaching? Wouldn't that have been amazing? Or better yet, what if Jesus could be here today? Wouldn't that be awesome? Just to sit across the table with him, have a cup of coffee and, and listen to him and ask him questions. Wouldn't that be amazing? Well, that's exactly what the disciples had for the better part of three years. They lived with Jesus all day, every day for the better part of three years. But now in this farewell discourse, Jesus is telling his disciples, that's about to change. I'm leaving. I'm going to depart. I will no longer be with you. I'm going to the Father. Now he's told them this before, but it just didn't sink in. Now it's starting to sink in. And so he tells them in verse 6, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They're starting to get it. Jesus is leaving. He's not going to be with us anymore. It's going to be different. Sorrow has filled their heart. But then Jesus said, but I tell you the truth. It's kind of like an oath statement. I'm telling you the truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, it's to your advantage. It is profitable for you. It is better for you this way. It's better that I go, that I can send the paraclete to you, and he will abide with you forever. You know, I, I think it would be amazing if Jesus could be here. But, but on the other hand, if he were here in the flesh, God in the flesh, as in his earthly ministry, he could only be in one place at one time, just like you and me. He could only be in one place at one time, and the only way you could ever get to him would be to make an appointment. Good luck with that. Have you tried to make a doctor's appointment lately? You know, the first available appointment is in November. And, and when you do get there, you're going to wait two hours for a conversation that might last two minutes. I don't know about your doctor, but my doctor can't wait to get out of the room. They're in and out as fast as they can. That's probably how it'd go with Jesus. You'd, you'd make an appointment years down. I mean, it would be a mess. No, this is better. It's better for you because now the Holy Spirit indwells you, the paraclete, the helper, the advocate, the, the spirit of truth indwells every believer. And now he is with us. He's with every believer all the time, everywhere. Edward Clink said this, what might seem like a paradox, the departure of Jesus therefore becomes the promise and guarantee of his presence. That is a paradox, isn't it? 
With his departure, we have the promise and guarantee of his presence. And then Jesus goes on to describe the work of the paraclete, the, the, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, the work of the spirit in the world and in the church. So that's our subject this morning as we look and see how Jesus describes the work of the Spirit. So if you have your bulletin, there's that listening guide on the back panel. We start, first of all, with the Spirit's work in the world, namely that he convicts the world. He convicts the world. In verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Without the Holy Spirit, our minds are darkened by sin and blinded by Satan. Our thinking is warped. We cannot understand spiritual truth and spiritual things because they are spiritually appraised. But part of the work of the Holy Spirit in the world is to open our minds, open our eyes, that we might see some of these eternal truths. This is part of the work of the world. He convicts the world, convicting lost people. And Jesus speaks of three specific things that the Spirit convicts us of, sin, righteousness, and judgment. So let's take a look. First of all, he convicts us of sin. He convicts the world, convicts lost people of sin. The word, the, the word convict here has the idea of convincing or exposing, exposing in order to convict or prosecute. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, exposes our sin, shame, and guilt. And, and the way this word is used in the New Testament, it's always with a view toward repentance. So the Holy Spirit reveals our sin, shame, and guilt, convicting us, convincing us we need to return to God. We need to repent. That's the whole idea of conviction. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Now, here's the problem. Without the Holy Spirit, without the Word of God, we human beings tend not to think of ourselves as sinful. We don't even think in the terms of sin. In fact, <laughs> uh, you can offend some people by suggesting that they are a sinner. You know, you're a sinner. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's you too. You're a sinner. Who are you to judge? How dare you call me a sinner? We live in a secular culture today where our, our, our culture, our society has no concept of sin. Really about the only sin left is the sin of calling something a sin. <laughs> That's a sin. You know, well, surely we can agree murder is a sin. Well, maybe not. Kind of depends, doesn't it? Who's killing whom? And maybe, maybe it was sinful. Maybe it wasn't sinful. Sexual sin. Now, God said sex is between a husband and his wife in the marriage bed. Everything else is sin. Well, not in our culture. I mean, anything goes. As long as we're, quote, consenting, quote, adults. And those terms are fluid now. As long as we're consenting adults, no, there is no sexual sin. What about lying? Is lying a sin? Why no? Lying's just good business. <laughs> you're not going to succeed in business unless you're a good liar. Sales, politics, legal profession. I mean, you've got to be a good liar in order to get anywhere. What about greed? greed? Greed's a sin, isn't it? Greed and covetousness? Well, no, we live in a capitalist society. I mean, that's the grease that, that lubes the whole machine. You've got to be greedy and you've got to want more. That's how, that's how it all, that's the way the world works. Idolatry? Well, surely idolatry is a sin. Why no, 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 no. Your truth is my truth, and, or your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and there are many gods. Or if there are one, only one God, there's many paths through that one God, and it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in your belief. So really there is, there's, there's no sin left. Point is this. Without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, without the Word of God, we, we human beings have no concept, no clue, to the exceeding sinfulness 
of sin. But here's the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God, that he would send his Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin, to expose our sin and our shame and our guilt so that we might repent and turn to God. That's, that's the love and grace and mercy of God. It's the work of the Spirit. Now, here in our text, there's one particular sin that Jesus hones in on, and that's the sin of unbelief in verse 9. Concerning sin, the Spirit of God convicts of sin, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Now, that's not the only sin, but it's the mother sin. It is the ultimate sin. It's the basic sin. We heard Jesus say in John chapter 3, he that believes, talking about believing in Jesus, believing in the Son, he that believes is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. It is the mother sin, the basic sin, the ultimate sin. So the Spirit of God convicts us of sin. He also convicts concerning righteousness. He convicts the world. He convicts lost people of righteousness. Now, if the world doesn't understand sin... It doesn't have a clue about righteousness. That's a foreign concept altogether. If you talk to somebody who's been at church a few times, they might suggest that, well, sin is doing bad things. Righteousness is doing good things. Now, there's a whole lot more to it than that. The Bible talks about righteousness a lot. And theologians kind of talk about this biblical righteousness in two spheres or two aspects of righteousness. It's all righteousness, but two, two venues, two aspects. And I put these on your outline for free. One is forensic righteousness. Forensic, you've heard of forensic science, has to do with law, legal proceedings, judicial, court. Forensic righteousness. Forensic righteousness has to do with your legal standing before God in his court according to his law. So forensic righteousness is that righteousness that comes from fulfilling God's law. Not just not breaking God's law, but fulfilling God's law. That's forensic righteousness. Now, if you could keep God's law perfectly, you would have forensic righteousness. Don't get ahead of me, but you already know we don't have that, right? You already know we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We haven't fulfilled God's law perfectly. We do not have forensic righteousness. But then there's ethical righteousness. Ethical righteousness is ethics, treating other people rightly according to God's law, not according to societal norms and standards, not according to your whims, not according to how you feel about it, but according to God's law, treating other people rightly according to God's law. You put those two together, that's righteousness. You can almost kind of think in terms of the Ten Commandments. You know, the first part of the Ten Commandments are about God. You'll have no other gods before me. You'll, uh, keep, his, keep, his, uh, you'll uh, keep his day, keep it holy. Don't take his name in vain. So it has to do with God. And then the rest of the commandments have to do with other people. Don't, don't commit adultery. Don't kill people. Don't steal from people, so forth. So it's, in, in a sense, there you go. You got the vertical. You got the horizontal. You can't separate them. Same thing here. Righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. You're standing before God. And ethical righteousness, the things you do before God, with respect to other people. So here's righteousness in a nutshell. A right standing before God or being right with God and doing right before God according to his law. Now, the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness. And what the Holy Spirit convicts us of or reveals to us, shows us, is that we are unrighteous. The Holy Spirit convicts us, shows us that we are 
unrighteous. We're not righteous. We are not right with God. We have not kept his law. We have not treated people according to his law on a consistent or or fulfilling basis. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now for his audience, that's mind-blowing because the scribes and the Pharisees, they're the most righteous, most religious people they knew. Well, unless you do better than they, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then later on, he, he just puts it this way. Therefore, you're to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh-oh. There's a problem there. This is why Paul quotes the Old Testament in Romans chapter 3. There's none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. In fact, the prophet Isaiah said, Our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. Our righteousness All those things we think make us right before God, they're like filthy rags before God. The Spirit of God convicts us that we are unrighteous. Without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, again, in our fallen state, we tend not to think of ourselves as sinners or being unrighteous. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, I'm I'm a moral person. I'm basically, I'm a very moral person. I'm a very spiritual person. Now, I'm not perfect, but nobody is perfect. I'm not perfect. You know, I'm not as good as some, but I'm better than most. (laughs) And and when it comes to going to heaven, I'm I'm, I'm sure I'll be be good enough because I've never really hurt anybody and I try to help people. I'm a very moral person. The Holy Spirit says, oh, no, you're not righteous. You're not right with God. And then the Holy Spirit also shows us we need his righteousness. We need a righteousness that comes from God that we cannot produce our own. It's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The Holy Spirit convicts, convinces, convicts us of these things. Now in verse 10, Jesus connects righteousness with his ascension. Concerning the Spirit will convict concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. That's an odd connection, isn't it? But you see, the world, the world system right there in Jerusalem, the world convicted Jesus of being a sinner and a blasphemer and they crucified him. But Jesus, God the Father raised him from the dead and highly exalted him, and God said, I beg to differ. (laughs) He's not unrighteous. He's not a sinner. He's not a blasphemer. In fact, he's the righteous one. He's the only righteous one. He is the the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's how righteous he is. He is our great high priest. That's how righteous he is. In fact, he is the righteous judge. And that leads us to the next thing. The Spirit convicts us of judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he says in in verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In our sin-darkened minds, in our our sin-darkened, sin-warped thinking, we work really hard at denying our own death, the reality, the inevitability of our own death. I mean, if we can be honest about it, we work real hard at pretending we're not going to (laughs) die. We lie to ourselves. We live in perpetual denial. Dying is what other people do. Dying is what unlucky people do, not me. I know theoretically I'll die one day, but it's, you know, probably 100 years from now. I mean, it's it's just, uh, we we play these games. We deny the reality of our death. Why is that? Because we're scared to death of death. Well, if death scares us, the idea of judgment is terrifying. 
In fact, the writer of Hebrews speaks of a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. The idea that one day you're going to stand before a holy God who will judge you. Your words, your deeds, your life. That you will stand and be judged by a holy God. That's that's too scary to contemplate. If death scares us, that's a horrifying thought. In fact, it's so terrifying that much of human philosophy is built around denying that. Even in in so-called Christian circles. Well, there is no hell. (laughs) There's no such thing as hell. Or, or, Or outside the church, oh, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no afterlife. Or there's just no God at all. And so you see, now you're off the hook. Now you can do whatever you want to do, and you don't have to worry about being accountable to God or eternal consequences. You, you can do whatever you want. My friend, that's wishful thinking for the damned. The Spirit of God convicts us. We are unrighteous, and we're going to face a holy God in judgment. In fact, the Bible tells us it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, judgment. The Word of God, the Spirit of God convicts us. There is a judgment day. There's a day of reckoning. Now, verse 11, Jesus connects that to Satan. He says, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Satan was judged, defeated, and condemned at the cross and by virtue of the empty tomb. He is a defeated foe. He has already been judged. He's already condemned. His his days are numbered. I mean, his doom is sealed. His sentence has not been carried out in real time as we know real time, but it's, it's already a done deal. And those who live under, under his reign and rule right now, meanwhile, the Bible says he's, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this domain of darkness. And those who live in his domain of darkness under his reign and rule are condemned alongside of him. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of judgment to come. This is the work of, of the Spirit. If, if you are saved, if you know Jesus as your Savior and your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home, it's because of the work of the Son on the cross and the work of the Spirit in the world. Thank the Lord. If you're saved, it's because Jesus Christ died on the cross and he was buried and he was raised again. If you're not saved, the good news is you can be saved because Jesus Christ died for you on the cross. He was buried and he was raised again. And if you're saved, it's because somewhere... Somehow, God brought to you the gospel and the Spirit of God convicted you of sin and righteousness and judgment and you received that gospel and believed in Jesus. The work of the Son and the work of the Spirit. If you've not yet been saved, the good news is you can be saved and the Spirit of God convinces you, convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We see this play out in Acts chapter 2. Let me show you what this looks like. In Acts chapter 2, let's speed up a little bit. Turn with me if you'd like. In Acts chapter 2, of course, we have Pentecost. After the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, I mean, this promise, this upper room discourse, this promise is fulfilled at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles. Peter gets up and he preaches to a crowd of thousands And in Acts 2, 36, at the end of the sermon, we're not going to read it all, but at the end of the sermon, he's told them all about Jesus. At the end of the sermon, he says this in Acts 2, 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? They were pierced to the heart. Move down to verse 41. So then those who had received his word 
were baptized. And that day were added about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine? Peter gets up, preaches to a crowd of thousands, and after one sermon, 3,000 people got saved. Holy cow. Peter must have been an amazing preacher. He was amazing. It must, I, I, I'm, just, I'm sure he was young. He was charismatic and dynamic and flamboyant. And, and his sermon, don't you know, uh, he had just the right mixture of funny stories and sad stories. Get them laughing, then you get them crying. And then uh, his illustrations were just on point. I guarantee you his outline alliterated. <laughs> you know he had a listening guide. Mm-hmm. He had a listening guide. And there were screen graphics and video clips and stage lighting. My only question is, was he wearing a coat and tie or was he wearing bold glasses and skinny jeans? Hmm, can't decide. All that stuff, folks, that's so trivial, inconsequential, and superficial. You want to know what happened? What happened was Peter got up and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has the power of God to salvation to them that believe. And the Holy Spirit of God convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it pierced their hearts, and they received his message, and they believed on Jesus. And 3,000 people got saved. That's what happened. Now, we're not going to replicate Pentecost. There are, quote, Pentecostal churches out there, but folks, Pentecost was a one-off. Just like the crucifixion. Jesus was crucified on the cross. Well, that's never going to happen again. That's one and done. Jesus was raised from the dead. That's never going to happen again. It's a one-off. Pentecost, by definition, was, was a beginning. It's the advent of a new era. There's only one beginning of the new era. So Pentecost is not going to be replicated. But the good news is we preach the same gospel, and it's the same Holy Spirit that convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's the work of the Spirit in the world. He convicts the world. Now let's look at the work of the Spirit in the church or in the believer. He enlightens the church. In verse 12, Jesus tells his disciples, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Now, there are other aspects of the ministry of the, of the Spirit in the body of Christ, and we learn about those elsewhere in Scripture, but let's just kind of stick with John 16, our text this morning. I want you to see the work of the Spirit in the church. One, he instructed or informed the apostles' teaching. He informed the apostles' teaching. Jesus said back in John chapter 14, he told his disciples, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. As we read the Gospel of John, let alone the synoptics, you get the sense that about half the time the disciples didn't get it. I mean, half the time. It just, Jesus would say something, shoom, just go right over their head. And sometimes they'd come back, what was that, Lord? What did that mean? What were, what were you saying? What is it? And, and he would explain to them in a second setting. But half the time they didn't get it. And then you also have the volume of material. They've been with Jesus for three years. All those conversations, all those sermons, all those parables, all, I mean, just three years of teaching. You're talking about drinking from a fire hydrant. Who could remember all of that? But then Jesus said, when the paraclete comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will teach you all things. He will bring to remembrance. 
And that's what the Spirit of God did for the apostles. He would bring to remembrance. We've seen a little bit of this already in the Gospel of John. And in John 2.22, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. In John 12, these things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written of him. So that's what the Holy Spirit did. When the Holy Spirit came, he taught the disciples, taught the apostles, brought to remembrance what Jesus said, what Jesus did, and connected the dots. Oh, that's what that meant. That's what Jesus was saying. That's what that parable means. Oh, and the Holy Spirit brought the Old Testament to bear on the life and ministry of Christ. And now the apostles can say, that's what Isaiah was talking about. That fulfills Jeremiah. That's what Moses was talking about. This fulfills the scriptures. And, and so the Holy Spirit did that for the apostles. He just brought it all together and crystallized what we call the apostles' teaching, which is not the apostles' teaching. It's the teaching of Christ as the Spirit of God brought it all together for the apostles. This is what they went about preaching and teaching. Paul, uh, Paul describes this. Uh, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 2, how this worked. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9. Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, us would be Paul and the apostles, to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. A natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And so this, the Holy Spirit brought all these things together for the apostles and crystallized what we have as the apostles' teaching. Now I want you to notice, too, as we think about this, notice in verse 13, that when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. The Spirit doesn't do his own thing. He's not out there freewheeling. He's not out on his own agenda, just like the son did not do his own thing. How many times have we heard Jesus say, when you receive my words, it's not my words, it's the words of the Father. I say the words of the Father. I just say what the Father has given me to say. The works, my works are not my works, they're the works of the Father. I just do the works that the Father sent me to do. So Jesus wasn't out here freewheeling, doing his own thing. The Spirit is not out here doing his own thing. The Spirit speaks for the Son as the Son speaks for the Father. And you have this functional interdependence in the Godhead. Robert Munch said this, We're not to expect new, in the sense of additional, truth from the Spirit, but a fuller understanding and appreciation of truth already known. Let me say that again. We're not to expect new truth from the Spirit, but a fuller understanding and appreciation of truth already known. As Paul put it, we've received the Spirit so that we may get an insight into the blessing God has already given to us. Here's a, a word to the wise, a word of warning. Take this home with you. Any preacher, teacher, or church that proclaims to have 
new truth, new revelation, <laughs> run for the hills. You need to turn and run. That is a false teacher. It's a false promise of a false, of a false prophet. Um, no, the Spirit just speaks what he hears from the Son. The Son speaks what he hears from the Father. It all, it, there, again, not new truth, new revelation. We might gain a new understanding of truth already known, but be careful of that. Well, then we also have the inspiration of the Scriptures. The inspiration of the Scriptures, and it's a logical next step. As the Holy Spirit crystallized the preaching and teaching material for the apostles, next thing is he led some of them to write some of that down. And what we have is the New Testament, the Gospels, the book of Acts, and the epistles. Paul described it this way in 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, and righteousness. Or as Peter would say, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We could say they were moved by the Spirit and they wrote from God. Now, we've talked about the inspiration of Scripture at length in other settings. We're not going to rehash all that this morning. But here's the work of the Spirit in, in the church. He informed the apostles' teaching, brought it together for the apostles' teaching. Then he inspired the Scriptures. And now, today, he illumines the Scriptures, the illumination of the Scriptures. We've said it before. You don't pry open God's word with your intellectual brain power. Now, there is, there is an academic discipline. There is an intellectual rigor that comes, comes to bear on rightly dividing the word of truth. But, folks, we, what we understand from God's word, we understand because God's spirit opens his word to us. God's spirit opens our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see and understand what we see and hear and, and read in God's word. It's, it's the spirit of God. He opens to us these eternal truths, these spiritual truths about life and death and heaven and hell and God and man and, you, and, and all the rest. God, God's spirit opens up his word. Without the Holy Spirit, <laughs> we're not going to get anywhere with the word of God. In fact, you could have a PhD in biblical studies and not have a clue about the word of God. And there are a lot of biblical scholars who do not believe the Bible. They dissect it for a living. And these are dead men who dissect what they consider a dead book for other dead men. But if you know Jesus and you love his word, you receive with meekness his engrafted word, the spirit of God will bring the words of life to the living. He illumines the scriptures. Well, one last thing I want you to see. He glorifies the Son. Notice in verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All through the Gospel of John, here's what Jesus has taught us about the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Here's what Jesus has taught us. The Son does not operate independently of the Father. The Spirit does not operate independently of the Son. The Father is at work in the Son the Son is at work in the Spirit. The Son glorifies the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son. And the Father glorifies the Son and has exalted the Son. And the Father and the Son send the Spirit. That's the inner workings of the Godhead as Jesus has revealed it. Here's another word of warning, <laughs> word to the wise. 
a church that ignores the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, never talk about the Spirit, don't teach the Spirit, we don't mention the Spirit, a church that completely ignores the Holy Spirit is unbiblical. They're off base. You, you, you can't just ignore the Spirit. On the other hand, a preacher-teacher church that's always and only about the Spirit, all the time, it's all this, Holy Ghost this, Holy Ghost that, Holy Spirit this, Holy Spirit that. If that's all you get, that, that's, that, that teacher, that preacher, or that church does not have the Spirit of the Spirit. Because the Spirit of the Spirit is not to glorify Himself, but to glorify the Son. The Spirit points to the Son. The Son points to the Father. The Father points to the Son and exalted to Him. And the Father and the Son send the Spirit. Wouldn't it be so cool if Jesus were here today and you could sit across the table with him and have a cup of coffee and talk to him and ask him questions? Wouldn't that be cool? Well, Jesus said, this is better. This is better. This is to your advantage. It is to your profit. This is better. Because you've got the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the helper, the comforter, the advocate who abides with you forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for your Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the work of the Spirit in the world and in the church. God, we thank you that in your love, grace, and mercy you convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that we might repent and turn to you. God, I pray for the one who's never been saved, and I pray that you'd help them to hear and to know that you would convict, convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that they need Jesus Christ. They're not right with you. They're not good enough. They're not moral. They need Jesus. Lord, bring them to the cross even today. God, we thank you for this time in your word. I pray that you'd seal these truths to our heart. May we live in light of them. Now take charge of this time of decision. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.